Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Today, we have a great guest, uh, Dr. Randall Moore, who is currently working for North Star Anesthesia as the Chief Anesthetist Officer. Randy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your education, and your current position with North Star. Yeah, it's great to be back, Mike. Thanks, thanks for asking me to join you. Uh, so, yeah, it's been uh, a bit of a whirlwind <laughs> in the last few years, so uh, my background, uh, you know, like like many folks who go into or CRNAs who go into leadership, I started my uh, my formal leadership career at a at Pasadena Hospital in Jacksonville, Illinois, where I became uh, director of anesthesia services. And uh, the cool thing about that facility and the cool thing about that job uh, was that I worked for a CEO named Doug Ron, who was really open to giving me opportunity that wasn't necessarily right down the lane of managing CRNA operations. So ultimately, I had the privilege of running the, the perioperative service line, we started a pain clinic, and we did a lot of things that were uh, really cool. And I learned a lot. And so during that process, I was also, you know, I finished up my DMP, and then I went and got an MBA. And then uh, I joined the board of directors at the AANA after a tour of duty with the Illinois Association. And then, uh, geez, I was on the board for almost I don't know if it's three or four years, I guess three years. And then Wanda Wilson, who was the CEO, announced that she was going to retire. And through a strange confluence of events, I became the chief executive officer of the AANA. And I was in that role for almost exactly four years to a day before I, I moved on to North Star. And so now with North Star today, what's your position? So I'm the chief anesthetist officer. Uh, I'm an SVP on the, so I, I am on the executive leadership team with my colleague and counterpart, Dr. Jim Roberts, who's the chief medical officer. Uh, we also have uh, other uh, other clinical leaders on the executive team, and my job is to uh, develop the strategy and to develop for CRNA operations. You know, obviously, North Star is a large company, and about two thirds of the workforce are CRNAs. So I have a big job in making sure that we, you know, we're doing the things that we need to do to recruit, to retain CRNAs, that we have the CRNA leadership structure to not only accommodate our current state, but also to accommodate the growth that we're experiencing. And I do other, a lot of things, you know, off kind of the side of my desk, including business development and getting, I'm involved in the startups and 
involved in uh, developing a marketing strategy and developed, you know, involved in about five or other things. So it's, it's a great job. It's a great company. And I've had a lot of fun in the last eight or nine months. So it's been about eight or nine months that you've been with Northstar. And for those that are listening that may not know much about Northstar, tell us a little bit about the company itself. So I think, uh, pardon the pun, but I see Northstar as a, a Northstar company in terms of the, what we, you know, like when we talk about the large anesthesia management companies, you know, the, the you know, the big dogs, the usual suspects, Northstar has a really interesting background and in that the company was initially started uh, by an anesthesiologist in the CRNA and in the Texas area. And they started out like most companies that started out small and they had some magic and uh, they got, they really grew the company pretty, pretty quickly. And a good part of the success that they experienced was the fact that it was a CRNA and an anesthesiologist running the company. And so the company had a very collaborative, it still does have a very collaborative orientation uh, to our clinicians. It is clinician focused. And we have uh, CRNAs at all levels of leadership, just like the physicians at all levels of leadership in the company. And so, you know, we are a very different company than it was when it was first created in the, I guess the early to mid 2000s. Uh, you know, I, I have to wonder if they could even recognize it now considering like the size and scope of the company, but there are some things that have, have stuck around the important stuff like being clinician focused, like really valuing CRNAs and physicians and, and having a really collaborative relationship at all levels of the company. Those are the kind of things that really attracted me to North Star and where I think we really differentiate. So like a shared leadership structure as opposed to maybe a company that's more physician centric or more CRNA centric. This is more of a shared leadership. For sure. I, I would also you know throw in the mix that we have you know, beyond the clinical leadership team, we also have an amazing corporate and operational leadership team. These are folks who uh, who are not clinicians, uh, but know business really well, and they're great leaders. And so, for example, the CEO of the company uh, is not a clinician, uh, but he's an exceptional leader, and he's clinician-focused. And so I think it's that what we call it, we call it the triad at North Star, right? So it's the physician leader, it's the CRNA leader, and it's the operational leader working together. Uh, I think that is a, I think that's the secret sauce and understanding that at the end of the day, our job is to be the most attractive employer for clinicians. I think, again, when we talk about, you know, I'm sure we'll unpack this in greater detail, like what's happening in the marketplace, particularly as it relates to supply, clinician su supply. I think the fact that we are so clinician focused and that we are uh, we're, you know, we call it the double bottom line, which is, yeah, we have, we have financial targets. The you know, all companies have financial targets, but we also really care about our people and we want to create a really healthy and attractive work environment. And so again, I go back to that's where having a, you know, a physician leader and a CRNA leader and an operator working together is the secret sauce, in my opinion. Excellent. Well, you were the former CEO of the ANA, as you mentioned, and I guess what a lot of people on that are listening to the podcast would want to know is, why'd you leave? <laughs> so, uh, great question. I've actually kind of gone in hibernation in the last eight or nine months where I, you know, I, I, I left the ANA. I was in a pretty high profile. I get it. I mean, like in, in the weird CRNA world, I was in a high profile role 
and then I, you know, I transitioned to North Star and I, I went dark for a little bit. And, and part of that was like, I just wanted to recalibrate some things in my personal life and my professional life. And, you know, so this is, the, I think, the first podcast kind of public facing thing I've done since I've, since I've left the organization. And so, you know, I talk a big game, <laughs> some, you know, often with like with my kids or with the people that I work with or with my direct reports about, like, you know, in order for you to have like satisfaction, you know, you know, like fulfillment in your life, some people call happiness. I don't know what happiness is. So I don't typically use that term is like, you, you have to be doing things that really um, align with your purpose. And, you know, the, the four years that I had at the AANA were, you know, hugely impactful for me. And I don't regret one second of it. I'm so, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity that I had to be the CEO for four years. But it was clear to me, you know, towards the end of my four-year tenure, and I think I'm, you know, in retrospect, I was kind of on the bleeding edge of the great resignation, where, like, I start, you know, with COVID, I started to ask myself questions like, you know, what, what you know, what, what do I want to do with my career? What, you know, what kind of impact do I want to have? And is, you know, proud of the work that we did at the AANA as much as I love the staff and, and most of the members. <laughs> Uh, I, it was clear to me that I was, I was in the wrong line of work and, and that, you know, I wanted to be back leading clinical leaders and I wanted to join a company that was disrupting the anesthesia care space in a positive way. And so I started the kind of Enviro scan and, you know, I talked to a few companies. I even talked to, you know, a great little company, not that little, but a smaller company uh, and that was really attractive, but ultimately I decided to, you know, have conversations with the North Star and the stars aligned, pardon the pun. <laughs> and here, and, and here I am. So, you know, I, like, I don't have any beef, you know, with, with anything related to my tenure at the AANA. It was an awesome experience and it was an awesome learning experience. But at the end of the day, Mike, you got to do what, what, you know, brings you value and, and, and aligns with your purpose and you can see your impact. And I felt like the four years was a, was a good run and it was time for me to go do something else. Right. It's definitely a different role to be the CEO of a trade organization as opposed to be in a clinician focused role at North Star. I mean, those are clearly some very minor overlap as far as the administration side of things, you know, you administered people and staff on both, but very different roles. And I, I can see how both would be fulfilling in different ways. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about like serving the CEO of the AANA, in my opinion, is, is the pinnacle of leadership in, in the nursing anesthesia community. And no, just, you know, I, I being on the board, I was on the board and I'm sure being president is awesome too. But I had the opportunity to do what only very few people uh, have had the privilege of doing. And I might be the last CRNA who was ever CEO of the AANA. And yeah, and I'm okay with that. Uh, And and so I've never lost focus of the fact that I had, it was an amazing opportunity. It was a great privilege, but you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly like leadership is leadership, strategy is strategy, but the AANA is a very different animal than a North Star, right? right? In terms of, you know, what you're, you know, the way that you interface with the board, a board that is mostly, you know, these are not mostly, but all volunteer leaders who uh, had varying degrees of leadership and business acumen. 
and you know you are doing a lot of board interaction you're making sure the board has the information that needs to make good decisions and of course you're leading a staff of 120 like truly dedicated and incredibly professional you know staff members but beyond that i mean for sure i mean the the, the you know it is a very different experience being at north star uh in that like the results are clear <laughs> meaning that you know with the with the AANA, a good percentage of the time that I had, you know, maybe fifty percent of my time was interacting with the board, managing the board, and 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 so some people love that. I've met the association executives who are exceptional at that, and they really love it, and good for them. I think it's awesome. I was that's not like in my DNA, and that like I I I don't want to spend fifty percent of my time managing the board. I want to spend one hundred percent of my time delivering results. For my clinical team, well, and there's so def- there's definitely a significant difference between a volunteer board of clinicians, uh, you know, that not might not necessarily have leadership training ahead of time, or not maybe not much, and a board that is business focused on the goals. Oh yeah, right. The, the strategic sure. difference is significant because the roles are different. That's not to say that one board is better than the other; they're different, and so. I, I think that that would be an incredible shift to not be managing the board, but just be managing operations would be quite different in a company as opposed to, you know, a trade association. Exactly. And, and it doesn't make one better or worse than the other. And because again, I've, I've met some just extraordinarily talented association executives who are just incredible at what they do in terms of the way that they, you know, they get their boards aligned and, you know, they're, you know, the progress in the association world is typically incremental. You know, and 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 slow. Mm-hmm. That's just the nature of the beast. That's that's the the byproduct of the governance and the structure of the association. Whereas the company I'm with now, Northstar, we can move fast. You can pivot. We can move very fast. We're very ag- we're very agile. We're 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 willing to take some risks. We're willing to put some invest some significant investments in things that, you know, in an environment where boards of associations typically are very conservative, they're very risk averse. You know, they, they don't want to be out in front of the membership on certain issues. When you have a for-profit company that has you know, a great executive team and a great board, we can move very quickly at some of these problems mm-hmm. and, and really exploit some opportunities that you can't do in a slow-moving association. Right, right. Different, different, uh, different goals, different, different processes. Uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So let's shift gears a little and talk about the state of the anesthesia business sector. Obviously, there's been many things that have happened over the last roughly five years that have shifted the business perspective of anesthesia, both as an investment opportunity for third-party companies, you know, or or venture capitalists or just big corporations, and at the small mom-and-pop shop level. Uh, You know, one of those you can't ignore is the impact of COVID. So from your perspective, now your new perspective at North Star, as opposed to your perspective with the ANA and as a clinician, what do you see has been the impact to the anesthesia business sector from COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. And and the history books are going to be more accurate and definitive than I'm going to be right here. <laughs> but I, I, I will say that like the way that I view COVID is it's not really a change agent. It's an accelerant. Right. So a lot of the things that have been that we've seen develop during COVID and then who knows where we're at in the stage of this pandemic, I'll be honest with you, there's some, you know, I'm, I've been really bad at predicting things, so <laughs> I'm not going to. But I will say that, you know, the provider shortage, 
that actually pre-existed COVID, right? right. The, the reimbursement issues that we're experiencing with payers, that pre-existed COVID, right? And the, you know, the, the, the challenges in healthcare access and, and, and healthcare quality all pre-existed COVID. But when you throw COVID in the mix, it pressurizes the environment and it makes those cracks even bigger and it accelerates change in, in a significant way. And it has truly pressurized anyone who has a footprint in healthcare. Uh, and, and obviously anesthesia is not immune to it. In fact, anesthesia has been hit pretty hard uh, with, with, uh, with COVID. If you look at the, the fluctuation in surgical volumes, uh, that's, you know, when you're talking about 20 to 30 percent swings in surgical volume over a year and a half, there was a one point in time where you know, surgical volumes dropped like 75 percent. That is a profoundly consequential and disruptive event. And it has significant financial implications uh, for the hospitals, the health systems, the ASCs, the, the, the mom and pop anesthesia shops, the mid, the mid tier and the large regionals are all kind of reeling right now. Uh, and just because some people think COVID is over, uh, doesn't mean that the long-term consequences of this is, are not are not playing out as we speak. Yeah, I, I I totally believe that, and I think that you know there's perfect examples of COVID accelerating things. Telemedicine is a perfect example. Telemedicine <laughs> was sort of the you know redheaded stepchild of medicine for a long time, talked about forever, but not really utilized. Now it's still being utilized in many ways for primary interaction with say specialists that aren't local. Uh, so that's yep. been huge. And then with, you know, from an anesthesia perspective, you've seen some belt tightening. I mean, some of that is at the hospital level with subsidies. Some of that is at the provider level um, with how many ORs you're willing to contract to keep open based upon volumes mm -hmm. that aren't guaranteed. Right. Like, you yeah. know, we might have been willing to do the extra OR thinking, OK, it's it's, you know, it's a 60 percent utilization right now. But you guys are looking at hiring somebody. It might you but I might not be willing to do it today. And so, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that volume could go away in the snap of a finger if another wave occurs and the facility is overloaded. And those things, it's happened enough at this point that I think those things are on the front of people's mind when it comes to ex overextension um, with contracts. And, you know, in addition to that, I think there's also been a shift on a legislative side because of COVID. I mean, you've seen APRNs, PAs, every type of provider. Now there's a, a definite focus, it seems everywhere, to have people work more toward full scope of practice, to ignore maybe what in the past has been restrictions that never really made sense, but never really had as much of an impact as people, you know, it was enough to put them over the edge to make the move. All that is starting to shift seismically. Uh, and I, I think we're seeing that across the country. Well, I think the thing that is, it's interesting. If, if we would have surveyed, and I, not we, there's like organizations like the American College of Healthcare Executives, the American Hospital Association, they do these surveys every year. And they ask, hey, CEOs, what's the thing that keeps you up? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. And up until about a year and a half, two years ago, the number one thing they would say would be margin pressure. meaning. Decrease, decrease reimbursement from payers, from increase the federal, cost. from the federal. Yeah, increased cost. Today, the, if these surveys are clearly identifying the single greatest threat, the single greatest challenge that they have right now is labor shortage. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's scary. It's scary because not only is there a scarcity of talent, but the cost because of the supply-demand imbalance has gone up exponentially and in many cases in an unsustainable trajectory. Right. And so you can see this hit the bottom line. It is, you know, with the COVID, you know, the COVID um, support dwindling or, or, you know, that, you know, all that COVID, COVID CARES Act is going to evaporate. Yeah. And that was, that was stabilizing a lot of finances of hospitals and health systems. That's going away very soon. And you're going to see a reckoning here when it comes to margin pressure. That is going to be pretty scary. And so, like, that's like, that's driving everything including the debate around, well, what can nurse practitioners do versus physicians? What can, you know, optometrists do versus ophthalmologists? What can CRNAs do versus physicians? When we have significant provider scarcity and it's not going to get better anytime soon, it's driving a lot of what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. which is different models. Uh, It's not really driving reimbursement models which is what that's the rate limiting step for adoption, to be honest with you. But it is driving, you know, certainly on the advocacy side, that's where you see things play out. And of course, that creates a lot of, you know, political challenges between the professional associations, which I can speak to and you can speak to in, in great depth, you know, because it's sure. like, this is, this is the stuff that the ASA and the AANA, this is table stakes for them. This is like, yes, you know, let's, let's, let's fight out this, you know, on the advocacy stuff on the public stage so we can so we can signal to our members how important we are to them. Uh, but, you know, what the big question I would have, and I get that I was the CEO of the ANA, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pointing the finger to myself a little bit here, is like when are these professional associations and more importantly, when are the boards going to get together and deal with the real problem, which is provider scarcity, uh, as well as like, you know, okay, let's figure out how do we work together on on models and and and, and reimbursement paradigms that support the specialty in the long term? But all of those things are really tough, really well, tough problems that that no one's really focusing on. They're tough. They're tough problems, but you know you have to get it your own way to start to solve them. So, and I think mm-hmm. that's that's where it becomes you know initial. Let's let's pivot to provider shortages. You know, everyone's talking about provider shortages and anesthesia, but you know the fact is is that probably 60% of physician anesthesiologists are not sitting in cases and doing their own anesthetic. If we were to take all those people, probably around 30,000 and put them in ORs, you would not have a provider shortage. So there is ways to pivot. And I have no doubt in my mind that most physician anesthesiologists want to do anesthesia. They're highly trained professionals. And I'm sure that they enjoy it just like I enjoy it, just like you enjoyed it, just like the CRNAs enjoyed it. It's, it's, not, it's certainly not a negative thing. It's what they've been forced into. And if that mm-hmm. could change and everyone would be in the OR, we wouldn't have this problem. But in order to do that, you know, you have to get, we have to get out of our own way with, you know, egos and make the change at the facility level, you know, instead of restrictive policies that limit individuals who are, you know, clearly safe, you know, like CRNAs, maybe what we need is, everybody working together as one big team creating a model which addresses needs not egos and and that's part of what we're running into here and that's part of the advocacy problem you know one group wants wants all that to change and the other group wants to keep it the same and that is 
that is that is becoming a problem in every possible way in the anesthesia space. So what we're seeing is, I mean, just today, Michigan opted out of the federal supervision requirement. What we're seeing is, as the 20th state, and what we're seeing is this movement toward more downward pressure on the way we used to do things to change things to a way that's more efficient. Because, you know, the mother of invention and advocacy for that matter is downward economic pressure, right? So when we're looking at the numbers, the numbers are terrifying. And I'm sure from your perspective, uh, you know, in Northstar, Northstar itself being a relatively large company, the provider shortage or the one that exists is something that you guys are talking about all the time. Well, of course, yeah. And, and, and this is where I would like point to, if you look at North Star's portfolio of clients and facilities that we have, we have every practice model under the sun. So we have all physician practices. We have all CRNA practices. We have what is frequently referred to as collaborative practices, where it's not medical direction, but there's a physician in the mix and there's CRNAs in the mix, and they're all kind of doing their own thing. And we have medical direction models. And... You know, what we are, our approach is like, we don't believe in a one size fits all approach when it comes to practice models. What we do want to know is what the client wants and what the, and what, um, a big part of that, which sometimes our, our anesthesia egos get in the way of actually understanding is that a lot of what's going on in the OR is dictated by the surgeon, right? And so surgeons, because, because they are the rainmaker. And so, (laughs) so like I, you know, what I would say, like, you know, I'm definitely approaching this a little bit differently than when I was like the chief advocate for the AANA <laughs> is that I, the way that I would position this and the conversations we have with our clients and with prospective clients is these are your options, A, B, and C. And this is what A costs, this is what B costs, and this is what C costs. We think option B works the best for you based on the acuity based on the culture that you have at the facility, based on the, the, the existing relationships between the physicians and the CRNAs, et cetera, et cetera. And we work with the client to educate them. And we realize at the end of the day, we're there to provide a service to our patients and a service to our clients. Right. And um, sometimes that makes sense economically. Sometimes the client's willing to pay a premium for a model that may not be the most efficient, but it's what they want. And so that's the kind of the way that I, I would position this. I think, you know, I think we both know, which is kind of the irony of this scope of practice stuff in these practice model conversations is there's more than enough anesthesia for everyone forever, right? Yeah, <laughs> there's, sure. there's never going to be a point in time, uh, at least in my lifetime, that we're going to go out and start laying off CRNA right. or, or anesthesia. Except for during a pandemic. It's just not going <laughs> yeah, to happen. And so, like, the way that I position these conversations with our clinical teams and, you know, our CRNA leadership team is, like, let's start moving, let's move away from the zero-sum conversations where I win, you lose, and let's figure out how we meet the needs of the client and the patient in a way that's really collaborative and is, is financially sustainable to the client and, and to North Star. And I know that's a lot of political doublespeak, but I actually believe it. And yeah, so, It's true, right? It's true. Yeah. Uh, the if you're if you're fighting against each other because one group thinks they should control everything and the un- other group wants their piece of the pie too or it, there's arguments and battles and the structure creates a natural a, a hierarchy you're going to end yeah. up with division 
I mean, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's the nature of, of that. That's the return on investment there. Right. Um, but on the other hand, if you're the facility and you you have a natural bent, you had all physician anesthesiologists and now you're you can't afford that anymore. And and maybe it's time for a change and you move to an anesthesia care team because that's what the culture is there. It takes time for change. Maybe then 10 years down the road, it becomes a collaborative model. Who knows? But the bottom mm-hmm. line is, you know, you've got to give the customer what they want and and you suggest what they really need. And they get to decide because they're the ones paying the bill, right? Ultimately, right. And and they're subsidizing somewhere around thirty to forty percent of the salary of every clinician yep. that practices at that facility. So, you know, it, they have they have truly skin. they have skin in the game. Yeah, they have skin in the game, and um, it's our job to educate them and to come in. You know, when when we you know North Star is growing in, in an impressive and disciplined way. And a lot of what we do when we come into these facilities where, you know, we've won a contract or we've acquired a company, most of it is us winning contracts. But we walk in the facility and we don't come in and kick the door open and say, North Star's here. Things are going to change. It's good. We, we come in and we're like, OK, let's figure out what's working really well with this facility, because invariably there are things that are going well. But there's also things that are not going well, which is why we're there. Right. And, right. and so and that's why the incumbent is not. You know the the you know and so the incumbent group. So I think it's like what we and this is like you know we have these conversations all the time is at Northstar like we have to be exceptionally skilled at change management. Yeah. And co- companies who figure that out, uh, you know whether you're a small company or you're a big company like Northstar are gonna they're going to be successful mm-hmm. uh, because at the end of, at the end of the day this is all about change management and making sure that you're enfranchising people and that you're creating an attractive culture. Uh, and so we talk about, you know, I, I always kind of giggle when people like give these anesthesia business lectures about how complicated anesthesia is. Anesthesia is one of the most simple, I, I think. I, I think it is like so easy. No, it's not easy. It's very simple. The business model could not be any more simple. It also is one of the hardest businesses to be in right now. So the, don't be fooled by the simplicity. It is super, super hard to be in anesthesia. So when I talk to people, you know, who are entrepreneur oriented, they can't, you can absolutely be successful. We are, but you're going to have to do the hard stuff to be successful. The easy money is gone in anesthesia. Just talk to anyone who is, the who owns a business. <laughs> yeah. Like it, the easy days are over. You have to be exceptional right. to be a successful anesthesia company. And what we're seeing now is there's not a lot of companies that are exceptional. No. And then you're seeing a lot of churn. You're seeing a lot of M and A activity. You're seeing groups fail. You're seeing groups ask to be insourced by the hospital or health system. You're ever seeing groups asking us to buy them, and so it's really tough out there. And what I would say to that is, you know, I, I welcome the challenge. Like Northstar welcomes the challenge because we know it's only going to make us better, and that you know, if we really want to be successful, we have to be a destination employer for clinicians. Full stop. There's no other way to do it. And so it doesn't matter how much marketing dollars you put, you know, behind your, your fancy ads on Instagram, people are not going to come work for you or with you if they think that you're a scoundrel and if you don't treat people well. And so that's where we're at, you know, as a company. It's like we really want to, you know, highlight the fact that we want to treat people well. We value our clinicians. 
or don't use them like cattle. Money isn't the only thing, right? It's important. Everyone works for money. But what yeah. engenders loyalty is being treated well. That's why people stay at a facility. Uh, and that's why people go to work for somebody or leave working for somebody. It's it's the environment that they're in. You could make you could be a CRNA in the top one percent making five hundred thousand dollars a year, but if you feel beat to death every single day and disrespected, yeah. you won't be doing that for more than a year. The money is not a great equalizer. All the other things keep people in a job. The sign on bonuses might get them there, but the the culture and environment is what keeps them there. And I think those are, one, those, are key issues. Yeah. those are key issues. Oh, that- one hundred percent. And the the challenge with that, Mike, is culture is actually very hard. Oh, Throwing yeah. money at people is is actually pretty easy, especially when forty to fifty percent of that money is subsidized by the hospital or the <laughs> health system. But like it, you know, this is like you have like compensation table stakes. You can't like be cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pay people well, right? You you have to take care of them financially, and you have to pay them with. And, and we're all about that. But you, if you're like putting all of your eggs in the compensation basket, you're going to lose and you're going to create a workforce that's very transactional. And, and the moment that the person across the street increases compensation by $2.54 an hour, they'll they will there. go across the street. Yeah. yeah. Now, a culture, culture is where differentiation occurs in this market. And it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult, particularly in the anesthesia space, to have attractive culture. And that's why almost nobody tries. <laughs> so, it, because it's like you're talking about changing human behavior. You're talking, you know, you know, you're talking about really overinvesting in leadership. And the truth of the matter is, you you, you can't afford not to do it. Uh, and it's expensive, and it it takes a lot of effort. It takes a sustained level of effort to be successful. Right. It's a long play. It doesn't make you money this year. Yeah, and that's the challenge is in our environment. A lot of the anesthesia companies, the big dogs, are they have a they have they're on a short term time horizon because they have private equity that's supporting them, and the folks in the private equity firm have a three to five year window, and then they're out. Mm-hmm. So that means that their time horizon, at best, at best, is three years. Right. And so when you're living in the short term, you don't make long term investments, you don't make long term plays, and that's the beauty about Northstar. I feel like I'm doing a hard sell and I don't mean to, but it's, it's the differentiator here is that we don't, we're not supported by short-term private equity. We have a long-term position. We, you know, our, our sponsor is not looking to exit. And so not looking for a transaction. So that allows us to do the hard stuff, which is put a lot of money into leadership. And, you know, like during COVID, like we kept our people whole during COVID. Not one person got a compensation decrease during COVID. And private equity supported firms typically don't do that because well, they're looking they they're, they're Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's the thing, right? So you got to look for the signal. Who's yeah. in it for the long term? Who wants to like develop a great company versus who wants to exit a company and, and get a payday? And that's the end of part one with Randall Moore from Northstar. Look for part two in the next couple of weeks. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussions, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com.